everyone and welcome to the second of our panels in our week on the future of British politics, um, a concept that I suspect some of my guests today might be challenging as we go along. Today's panel is looking at national identities and British politics, and I'm very pleased to have um, a really expert panel with me. I'm looking forward to, to hearing their thoughts. So I have with me Elsa Henderson, who is currently directing the Scottish Election Study um, and based at the University of Edinburgh as well as having written a very, very interesting book on Englishness recently published. I've got a copy down here somewhere to wave around later, um, uh, Coffee and Anand from yesterday. Um, I have with me Sander Katwala, who's Director of British Future. Um, John Denham, Director of the Centre for English Identity and Politics at the University of Southampton. And Mike Kenny, Director of the Institute of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. Now I'm going to pose some questions to the panel just to get us started and then we will move to questions from the Slido. Do please pose your questions, vote for questions, make my job as chair just a little bit easier um, and we'll see, <coughs> sorry, see how the conversation progresses. So the big question that we posed for this session was what is the role of national identity, nationally ident national identities in British politics in the 2020s. And I'm gonna to come to each of you with a slightly different take on that. Elsa, coming to you first. I wondered if you could talk, talk us through what you think the role of national identities are, but with a particular reference to how that differs in the diff different parts of the UK. I, I think um, we'd be interested to hear more about that. First of all, unmute myself. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for the question, and, and thanks for the invitation to to be here today. It's a real, it's a real treat to be able to talk about this stuff. I mean, I think, you know, fo folks are generally aware that there are there are different sub-state identities in in England and Scotland and Wales, and and the first thing I'd say is that in Northern Ireland, national identity is kind of yet another instance of its separate treatment because the tools we use, the handy shorthand tools we use like the Moreno question, Scottish, not British, more Scottish than British, that doesn't really make sense in Northern Ireland because the polls don't quite work. You know, what is it British, not Irish? Is it British, not Northern Irish? And so that the first thing we know is that national identity and studying national, identi national identity in Northern Ireland doesn't quite fit the mold. And it's seen as kind of yet another justification for its its general excision from 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 British politics. That's a point my my colleague Dan Wincott makes, you know, more eloquently than I than I just did. The, the next is that the, the strength of territorial identity varies across mainland Britain. So the proportion describing themselves as Scottish far outstrips the proportion describing themselves as British. You get a gap, but a slightly smaller one. In Wales, it's in the same direction. And in England, you get something of a dead heat. So the territorial identities don't quite work in the same way. First of all, Englishness is far more tangled together with Britishness, both in terms of the labels people use, but also the content that people think it has, is far more tangled together than, than is the case in Scotland and Wales, where Scottish and Welsh identity are far removed from, from, from British identity. And the other thing is that territorial identities align with different political preferences and with different values in different parts of the state. And the classic example of that is obviously that Scottish 
and Welsh national identity aligned with support for Remain, whereas English national identity aligned with support for Leave. So that's the sub-state side of things. But also it's important not to forget British national identity. And the, uh, the other side of this is that, is that British national identity works differently in different parts of the state. And that manifests itself in three ways. First, different types of people describe themselves as British in different parts of the state. Second, those who hold a British identity have different preferences and values depending on where in Britain they live. And sometimes it's not just different, it's opposite preferences. So in some ways, Britishness in Scotland and Wales looks an awful lot like Englishness in England, if you're looking at attitudes to Europe, attitudes to devolution, public spending. And the third thing is that national identity in general does a variable job of discriminating amongst individuals in different parts of the state. And by that, I mean, national identity doesn't actually help you understand some things in Scotland, in part because so many people feel Scottish. So if you look across the identity labels, it doesn't actually help you to understand variations and attitudes to Europe. Whereas if you're in England, you get wildly different assessments of England as you walk across the identity categories from English, not British, to British, not English, right? So national identity does, does a different job uh, and it helps us more in some contexts than others. And I think all of that, obviously I think all of that is interesting in itself, but I think that, that, that I'll end on this. I think it poses two problems I or challenges. I think it poses challenges to academics and I think it poses a challenge to practitioners. And in terms of the challenges to academics, we see in, in efforts to describe why people think the way they do or why they behave the way they do, we see two classic examples of errors in British, dominate, in, in British data sets that are dominated by English respondents. We find that sometimes researchers will shove in a, a variable that is supposed to capture Scottish national identity without ever really acknowledging that that is in many ways a proxy for living in Scotland. It's not actually capturing the operation of Scottish national identity. And the other classic mistake we see if people miss these nuances is that people will throw in a variable called British national identity and expect it to work exactly the same way, regardless of where a respondent lives in Britain. And in England dominated data, what happens then is that you tend to be capturing the way Britishness works in England and assume that that is universally true across the mainland. And that's just, that's just wrong. The second thing, of course, the challenge for practitioners is that if we know that a decreasing proportion of people describe themselves as British, and even among those who do describe themselves as British, they hold different values and attitudes depending on where in Britain they live, it's very hard for British national identity to therefore serve as a kind of unifying, rallying identity for a kind of project for understanding the state. People who describe themselves as, as British have very different expectations of the state. And I'll leave it there. Thank you, Elsa. I'm sure we'll be picking up some of those themes as we go along, but I'll come to... Um, Sunder now, if I may, and I think it links very closely with what else has just been describing. I wanted to ask you how um, national identities relate to other types of political identity. I know you've been working at British Future looking at 
Brexit identities recently, for example. So I wondered how these different identities interplay. I think I think the interplay has become more complicated as as national identities become more central to our politics. I mean, so many of the uh, issues we're dealing with, it, it might be Brexit and the relation with Europe or our place in the world, or it might be um, you know, race and faith relationships um, in, in Britain. There are arguments in devolution independence. There are arguments about national identities, but there are, um, as Elsa was saying there as well, this is a country in which um, most of us have more than one thing that we think of as a national identity. Um, and most people have some allegiance to more than one flag. And so the way in which those national identities relate to each other is changing because while Britain has always been a, a multinational um, entity and, and state um, at some level, there's just been much more consciousness of that in the last 25 or 30 years than there was before. So there's now an understanding, I think, um, that it's a, it's a contingent union of consent. That's the deal in Northern Ireland. It's been understood to be the deal in Scotland. There might be debates about how you test it, but fundamentally the, the, the barrier to whether were the bits of the United Kingdom in or not depends on depends on whether they want to be. Um, and also it's it's more consciously multinational because I think the English have begun to understand probably sometime after Euro 96 or devolution in 1999 that being English and British are not identical, even though they remain conflated. And that was always, I think, um, a bit of a gripe and a bit that, that the English didn't understand that and thought and thought they were the same. But I think I think this point that Elsa making has been underestimated, that it's incredibly hard to now renew British identity or have new British projects for several reasons. Firstly, we don't have a single general election because we have different party systems. So even the general election for Westminster is a series of four different um, national elections, um, as well as there being you know, devolved elections as well. We don't really have a shared media, but also things get lost in translation because calling yourself British in England and in Scotland uh, or in Northern Ireland, so only different Northern Ireland, they're almost the opposite kind of idea. And so, if you're, you know, if you're if you're more British in England, you are you are quite likely to be a Londoner or or a Sikh uh, or a Liberal Democrat Remainer or a graduate. You're a left-leaning person. If you're more British in Scotland, you are you're more likely to be older, whiter. Christian and conservative. And so these are these are different ideas about what, what Britain is. It used to be the case, I think, that you could say the British identity is different because it's the shared civic identity of a multinational state. So that's the one that needs the rules of the game, the citizenship identity. We give people passports that relate to that one. It has a parliament, it has institutions, you know, the NHS, remembrance and so on. So we determine that one and the other ones are, are kind of more cultural more personal, this one's more civic. So governments pay attention to that one. Once you have this multinational state with devolution, actually the national identities need to be civic as well. This was very clearly recognized in Scotland, I think, um, before and after devolution that you know Asian Scots or Scottish Scots, Scottishness isn't an ethnic identity. And that's that that's been that's been coming through. If you want to give public recognition to identities in a, in a multi-ethnic, multi-faith state, then the identities you're giving public recognition to have to be able to belong to all of the people who live in and belong to that state. It's been slow with Englishness, and John will talk about this, I'm sure, but it's coming through with Englishness. It's been slow with Englishness, partly because England is a, a stateless, polityless, parliamentless nation. 
And so you haven't actually had to have that conversation about Englishness outside maybe of the sporting field where, it, you know, the meaning has changed in my lifetime. So the interplay of the different national identities is really important before we get to the left-right politics. The danger is, I think, that because national identity is so potent and powerful in politics, they're becoming increasingly politicised, and yet they rely, in a way, on staying above and beyond and outside party politics to work as national identities. And there are some real dilemmas right now, I think, in the politics of, say, the way a politics of national identity might work for the Conservatives in, in England um, around you know, splitting maybe the centre-left coalition, the Labour coalition, but on, on its views about national identity, that might put the union at risk as well. And so you, you get a sort of forced choice as to which project you're pursuing. If we have this generational polarisation in politics, people of different generations in different parts of the UK, between the cities and towns of England, feel differently about national identity. So a, a generational polarisation of politics, a culture war politics, is actually quite dangerous for the thing that national identities are actually there to do as well, which is to provide the glue and the institutions that go beyond the partisan political identities we hold. Thank you. I'll try that again unmuted. <laughs> I think lots to get in our teeth into there and some questions coming in already around some of those issues as well. But I'm going to turn to John first. And you wrote quite soon after the everybody wrote quite soon after the Hartlepool by-election, something or other, myself included. Um, but you wrote particularly about how it had revealed a, an English problem for the Labour Party. Um, but it seems, and some of the questions coming in raise this point as well, it seems that, that neither party really have an answer that's directly about Englishness. And I wondered if you could talk us through what you see as this English problem for the Labour Party and how it plays out. Well, let me talk about England, because I think the truth is that one party has managed extraordinarily well to appeal to English identifying voters in what has been a remarkable but largely unremarked realignment of national identity politics over the last 20 years. In 2001, it really didn't matter very much if on the Merino scale you were more English than British, equally English and British, or more British than English. The more English was somewhat more conservative, but Labour won amongst all those groups. Since then, the Conservatives have increased their vote share at every single general election amongst the more English, rising from 40% in 2001 to 7 out of 10 of them in 2019. Amongst the equally English, their vote share went up at nearly every election from 30% to 50%. Conservative support amongst the more British than English flatlined throughout this period. And it's not generally known that in 2019, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party actually polled more amongst the more British than it did amongst uh, than the Conservatives did. So Labour won that bit of the bit of the election, but got wiped out everywhere else. So why has this happened? Well, to some extent, it's things we're familiar with. Um, groups aligning with socially liberal or conservative values, different demographics. But what I think is critically important is that as you move across the Merino scale, you find groups and people with very, very different views and priorities about ideas of the nation, about national sovereignty, about democracy, about their views of whether the EU works for England or the union works for England. They're the people at one end who want an English parliament, and English votes for English laws, much less so at the other end, people who think there are English interests within the union that should be pursued. 
And the reality is that the Conservatives' success has been tapping those ideals of national democracy, national sovereignty and national interest. So though the Conservative Party doesn't directly speak about England very much, conservatism as it now is, is incredibly Anglo-centric. It is dominated by people who project a view of the union as the extension of England's interest. And indeed, you could say that the appeal to Englishness has reshaped the Conservative Party, reinforcing its Anglo-centric nation. So if you look at the last 15 years for the purposes of Brexit, the delivery of national sovereignty by an Anglo-centric Britishness is what the English wanted to see, an enhancement of national democracy. We can debate whether that's what's happened, but that's how they see it. And they've appealed powerfully to English uh, sentiments. So I think this has been a, a really massive change. The Liberal and centre-left um, and the Labour Party has not so much been defeated on this battleground, but not on it at all. Um, Labour, for example, does not speak to England in any form, but nor does it make any attempt to appeal to that sense of national interest or national democracy. It's not in a debate about sovereignty and democracy. So that's the big change that has taken place. It's worth saying, incidentally, that there's no evidence that the last 20 years was an upsurge of sort of English racism or xenophobia. All identity groups have become more liberal over that period of time. The idea of Englishness itself has become more diverse over this time. But the more British group has diverged much more from the rest of the identity groups than anybody else in terms of its values and its composition. So the real challenge for the English bit of British politics is can any part of the liberal or centre left break out of the place? I mean, the Labour, Greens, Liberal Democrats are now all competing in that small minority of English voters. And English politics will not change till somebody finds a way of reaching out beyond that. Now, obviously, you have values in place, you have economic issues in place. It seems to be unlikely that things will change for the Labour Party or anybody else on the centre-left unless they can make grounds around the ideas of Englishness, national interest and sovereignty. Thanks, John. We're definitely picking some of those issues back up. We've got a number of um, questions coming in about what Englishness is. So I'll, I'll tell you that one's there so you can start thinking of your responses while I, while I turn to Mike. So, Mike, I'm going to bring us now even closer to last week's elections, I think, in terms of thinking about national identity. And do you think that the, the success we saw for Metro Mayors um, it was more than a week ago now. My, my, the time has gone into a very strange shape over the last year. Um, but the, the Metro Mayor elections, do you think that what we, the success we saw there, the fact that they were able to build personal profiles, um, do you think that stems from a desire for a more localised politics and from local identities or is something else at work there in this, in this whole system of, of place-based identities? Um, thanks, Paula, and, and for the invitation. Um, I think there are different lessons actually that we can we can probably derive from those most recent um, metro mayor elections. Um, I think one is that the, the story there's a story here about um, those very successful incumbents who did manage to build strong personal profiles in the area they represented, and were also able, in different ways, to present themselves as the champions of the interests of local people. And I think you can see that in, in two kinds of way. There, there are those mayors 
who've been very proactive about sort of, I suppose, billing themselves as figures who can stand up to government, to the centre. And obviously Andy Burnham, I guess, is, would be the, the most uh, resonant example of that because of the, the standoff he had or that he led with Boris Johnson's government um, during the, the, the attempt to um, uh, impose regional lockdowns and make different decisions about different parts of England at that point. So that's one kind of way of, of, of championing local interests. I mean, another way that's clearly been very effective for some of those leaders is to be very good at bargaining for resources from central government. And Ben Houchen, the Tees Valley, and his, I mean, his result was probably the most striking result, I think, of the mayoral elections, having because previously he just scraped home in the in the previous mayoral election. He has been extremely um, effective at securing different resources from central government, including the Tees Valley Airport. And I think well, generally he aligned himself, his campaign aligned very closely with the Conservative Party's wider pitch in these elections, which was very much centred around investment, jobs and resources going into forgotten about areas. And I mean, it seems to me that in the great sort of um, uh, sort of reckoning that's going on about Labour's poor performance in some of these areas, that's been a bit missed, the extent to which there was a very clear and strong policy message from the Conservative Party and Houchin really aligned with that. Then you can see another figure like Andy Street, who I would argue in the West Midlands does a bit of both of those strategies. Um, then it's interesting, there were incumbents who didn't do either of those things very well. Um, Conservative candidates in the West of England, and also in uh, Cambridgeshire, Peterborough, James Palmer, both of who lost their seats. And, you know, one way of seeing that is that they were neither able to build a strong sense of um, being effective at bargaining with central government, nor did were they able to project themselves as sort of champions of the locality in the ways these other figures do. In James Palmer's case, actually, it should be said, that, um, and this will be an issue, I'm sure, that resonates in government, um, the electoral system also was a key factor. I mean, he he got the most votes, I think 40% of the votes cast in the first round of that election, but ended up losing because second preferences of those candidates eliminated went to the, the surprise winner, um, a Labour candidate in that area. So whether that, I mean, what does that add up to? I, I'm not convinced we can be absolutely certain that this, this signals a wholesale desire for a more localised politics. But I think it is interesting that you can, or at least you can see the institution here, which is still quite a new one of having met, um, Metro mayors maturing and people becoming more used to it and a bit more familiar with it. In every one of those contests, except London, which isn't isn't the same kind of mayor, but it's a mayoral election. In all of those contests, turn up went up. And I think there is a good argument to say that, that people are generally more aware of the existence of their mayors. And I think the COVID standoff that I mentioned earlier probably has had quite a big impact on making somebody like Andy Burnham, I think, a much more widely resonant figure. But these are this is still a, a fairly new innovation. Um, and there, you know, clearly there is an extent to which people are still, I think, becoming used to it. So I think we can conclude from this that it's becoming a more embedded 
part of the kind of political scene in England. And I mean, it does become an important forum, I think, for the articulation of interests and identities at, at the local and city level. Thank you. So I'm gonna turn to some of the questions on the Slido now, just to say to people putting in their questions, there's a lot of questions there that are quite constitutional um, in focus. And I'm gonna come to, I'm not gonna come to many of those questions because we have a whole session on the constitution tomorrow. So I'm not gonna come to many of those questions um, to the relief perhaps of, <laughs> of the panel, um, but I'm gonna focus primarily on the, on the ones around national identity. And the top question, for quite a long time was whether does whether national whether English identity exists and if it does what does it mean beyond waving a flag and support for the monarch um, and even there you know there's some there's some tensions with Britishness to be explored as well so I don't know who fancies a go at that one first um, what you know what what would the content of English national identity be I think is is what the question is getting at you're Can all unmuted, which suggests everybody wants to speak at the same time. John, I'll come to you first. Well, I'm, I'm going to make a point just to stir it up. That is a they question, not a we question. As somebody who identifies as English, I have never felt the need to justify being English or to explain what Englishness is. It's a they question which gets asked by people who are not English. Now, there's a serious point behind this, because one of the differences between Welsh and Scottish politics and English politics is that in Wales and Scotland, the state is overwhelmingly Welsh or Scottish, as are civic society organisations. As we've shown in my centre, if you look at the English elites, like civil servants, academics, people who work in voluntary organisations, journalists, the sort of people disproportionately likely to be on this call, they are much more likely to be more British than they are to be in equally English and British or English. So there's a real issue because part of what comes out in the politics of Englishness is a rejection of an establishment that is perceived as not being people like us. When you say, what is Englishness? I mean, I what I prefer, what I prefer to do is focus on those things that make English identity politically salient, because I run a centre on English identity and politics. And so I would say a number of things. Firstly, without repeating myself, you are much more likely to say that England has its own interests, which are different to those of the union. You want political parties to represent those. You want English votes on English laws. You want an English parliament. So there's a political conception of England. And you also thought England lost out in the EU. Secondly, your Englishness is quite closely associated with your Britishness, so you're likely to be patriotically English and patriotically British, whereas the more British tend not to be very patriotic even about their Britishness. So there's a patriotism there. Secondly, thirdly, when you come to your, all of your identities, you're likely to be locally rooted as well. So somebody who says, I am English, is also likely to be from somewhere in their own mind, from Yorkshire or Cornwall, or in my case, Devon. Whereas somebody who is more British is much less likely to have a local part of their identity. And then you can go on a bit further and you can say, well, actually, you're probably more likely to be living in a smaller town than a big city. You're probably more likely still to be living close to where you were born and brought up so that you will have a sense of a community as a sense of belonging 
which is more deeply rooted than it will be for people in more mobile and more diverse parts of society. Now, I think all of those things, politically, which is my interest, make the behaviour of people with English identities different to those whose identity is purely or very largely, largely British. And I think this largely exists in a separate world to cultural ideas of Englishness, of landscape or poetry or arts or whatever. I mean, Mike's written on this in the past, he might have a different view, but I think the political elements of Englishness are very clear. They're discernible from all of the polling, all of the data that we've got and can't really be contested. Thanks. keep saying thank you while muted which is not very helpful is it um i'm going to turn to elsa next but not before i've promoted her book on englishness um, so if anybody has got an answer for us as to what englishness is <laughs> and i recommend the book as well well I, I was just enjoying listening to john's answer and also his his first comments made me laugh because of course it's a book written by two people neither of whom are english neither of whom are based in english universities but i think it was that outsider perspective that that you know, I think we were sitting, looking at the union in our through our lens of looking at it from Cardiff and looking at it from Edinburgh and 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 looking at things in a slightly different way. And I think that's what prompted us to think, hang on a minute, there's something really interesting going going on here. And I mean, it, in the question, I I, I like the question. I, I think it's a, I think it's a fair one. And and the answer, the first answer is that in a way, there's not an awful lot that's different about Englishness than about Britishness in one very narrow sense. Because if you ask people what makes them proudest to be English and proudest to be British, they tend to say the same things. And that's true if we give a list and we're just asking people to pick from a list of say 15 things, but also if we ask open-ended questions, people arrive at exactly the same kinds of things. There's a big table, there's two big tables in the, in the book that, that talk about when, when given the opportunity to describe these things in their own words, people use the same terms, the same language, they're landing in the same place when they're thinking of England and Englishness and Britain and Britishness. However, when you look at the, when you look at the opinion data that, that John alluded to, and we, we started running the, the Future of England survey in 2011, I mean, it's, it's fairly clear that English national identity aligns with a very particular understanding of England's place within the two unions that until recently it found itself in. So it's, it aligns with Euroscepticism and it aligns also with a, what we've been calling kind of Devo anxiety, a very particular take on the way the union operates. And you are more likely to be Eurosceptic if you are more Devo anxious, and both of those things are true if you hold a strong English national identity. So the more you prioritize your Englishness, the more Devo anxious you are, the more Eurosceptic you are. And both of those things are linked quite helpfully for us in a quote provided by one of the people involved in the 2015 uh, Conservative Party campaign, where they were explaining why they used those images of, of the SNP kind of uh, exerting control over labor politicians. And it was because the English electorate hate to be ruled by foreigners. And in that list of foreigners, they included people from the continent, but also the Scots themselves. So there is, a, there is an inbuilt reaction to, to that, that assumption that that's the way that Englishness mm. works was part of the underlying motivations of the, the 2015 Conservative Party campaign. The other thing I would say is that we do see clear 
differences among those who describe themselves as English and those who describe themselves as British in terms of attitudes to English governance. First of all, there is a far greater desire for change. And to some extent, there is a sense that literally any change will do. But within that, we also see a clear preference for treating England as England. And that's, that's one of the instances where actually people who describe themselves as English and people who describe themselves as British hold exactly the same preferences. Around two thirds to three quarters of those, regardless of national identity, prefer an England-wide solution to, uh, to a, a regional solution. John's absolutely right on, on local identity, so I won't, I won't repeat his point. The last thing I would, make, I, would, I would say though is that throughout we found a consistent relationship between Englishness and efficacy and specifically low efficacy. So this sense that you, you don't have a say in politics, that politics isn't responsive to your efforts to exert any kind of influence. And this comes up time and time again when we look at, when we look at Englishness. So, so, I mean, that's my kind of long rambling view. It's tangled together with Britishness in some ways. English national identity is separate from British national identity. When we're looking at evaluations of the state, there's a clear desire for change in terms of English governance, operating at the level of England and efficacy matters. I very nearly said thank you on mute again. <laughs> thank you, Elsa. Mike, I think you wanted to, to come in as well. Yeah, yeah, really. Just, just to, two points, just to amplify, really, what what Elsa and John have said, which bro broadly I agree with. Um, I mean, one thing is, I think it is important though to to, to think about the history of this. Um, whilst I mean, some of the things that 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 we're hearing about there definitely are very recent phenomena, and I think I think um, you know the kind of emergence of political Englishness, as John puts it, is is in some ways clearly rooted in in sort of recent circumstances and uh, to do with things like Brexit and so on. But I think it's important to see that there is a very long tradition of agonising about what Englishness means. I mean, you can see this going right back into the 19th century, even before that. And I think that, that that's not an accident. It's partly because of England's, the, the, the way in which the English polity, it forms itself, connects itself with, through the unions, um, that it embarks upon, the way in which it then becomes part of this wider entity that we now call the UK, but has had various names over the, over the last um, couple of centuries and more. And I think there's something about the anxiety about what happens to the, the nationhood of the largest people of this entity when that, when that sort of absorption of self absorption occurs into a larger entity that is is an important part of the backdrop here when people previously have agonized about this they've tended to try to pin Englishness down either in terms of culture or character so there's been there's a long tradition of trying to find what is the key to the English cultural mindset and I read doing research on this all these books that, that tried to pin it down to English humor or was it our love of tea or something like that and and of course it's, it's an endless almost slightly neurotic project that can never be fulfilled. There is not one thing that makes somebody English in, in that cultural sense, even though cultural practices are an important part of the history, I think, of what makes people feel English rather than, rather than say, just being British. But the character too, there's been a long discourse of, of attempts to try and pin down the English character and to see George Orwell used to, you know, would write in these terms, see if it lent itself to a certain political outlook. And again, that too, 
was an attempt that, that, that could never be fully closed. I, I think the second point I'd make is that whilst I think John's right to separate out cultural Englishness from some of the political stuff, I think there are connections between them. I think it's something actually we, we ought as academics to be thinking harder about. And one of the connections I'd just mentioned is it seems to me that if we track cultural Englishness back as we can, I think to the 1990s, in particular, when we begin, do begin to see a reassertion of and an emphasis on what it means to be English in a whole bunch of different artistic cultural domains. I don't think we get any clear answers to that. I think that's an important preparation for this more recent phase where people want to sort of hang more in political terms uh, on, on a sense of English identity. And I think that, that actually to understand the current period, we probably need to look back at, the, at those origins, those roots, back, say, 10, 20 years. Sunday, coming to you on that one. Because it's a national identity, um, you know, there are 30, 40, 50 million ways in to being English. Um, and, you know, we're not all going to agree on one. And um, obviously it differs in the North and the South. I think there are some parts of the country where it's... Uh, it's it you know it might fit very nicely with Yorkshire identity. It might feel in, in tension with Scouse identity. So we've got some dogs um, disapproving of my uh, comments here. Um, but but if we focus on the English people who feel most English, feel most politically English, and and what they want and they drive the politics, we're missing out quite a lot of the Englishness that's going on as well. There's also an Englishness in the cities and an Englishness among young people that is different, moderate, more softer, a sort of somewhat pride in being in being English. People who wear it lightly. It's also part of the, the English identities across London, for example, get left out of this, of this story. And so you miss some of the ways in which Englishness is changing because the people who are equally British and English and the people who are more British than English, but still a bit of both, also actually have a stake and a share in English identity. And I think this is why um, the discourse has missed, you know, one of the changes, which is that the English identity is going on the same journey as the British identity and that it's going across ethnic and faith lines in a way that people didn't expect it to. But among people who are probably more British than English, or they might become equally both when the football tournament's on. But the, the half of the ethnic minority population that was born in England has a birthright claim to English identity that probably doesn't resemble the English identity that we're talking about driving the Brexit vote, but does actually support the same football team that Gareth Southgate will take into the tournament and has a stake and an identification in it. So there's a, there's a softness and softening of English identity alongside this hardening of English identity that gets left out, I think, if we talk only about the people who feel who feel most English and not about the large group of people for whom English is one of their one of their identities um, and how that's great. Actually, Sandra, I'm going to come straight back to you with, with the next question because I think it picks up on some of those themes. And the question is whether or not national identity um, and, and the particular question doesn't say whether we're talking about British or English, and, and perhaps there's a different answer, but whether national identity can accommodate those for whom their kind of connection with the nation was about also about being European and about a European identity. Are there ways of building that into this kind of multi-layered identity you're talking about? I think I think most of the people who feel European, which is a relatively small group in in the UK, but but probably growing a bit. It's probably growing. It, it was fifteen percent for many many years. You know, it might it might head up to sort of 
you know, half of the Remain vote, um, maybe. Um, um, you know, people who feel European will identify with maybe with London if they live in London or Bristol if they live in Bristol. They will feel British as well. And they might now feel a tension between those things. But I think if you took sort of European, not British and not English anymore, then you, you'd be looking at a very tiny segment of, of people who either regret the decision to leave the European Union and who regret it because it's brought their European identity there. I think a moment of loss like that will will increase its its salience. But but European identity was only ever a minority of people who thought we should stay in the European Union because primarily the sort of consent for being in when it was there was more transactional than identity based. And that is, I think, why the British engagement with the European Union when we were in it was largely different. So there's more of a tension, I think, between British and European identity than there is for most of the other national identities within the European Union. Does anybody else want to come in on that one about the tension between national identity and European identity? Maybe if I phrase it differently, should should we be asking should we be asking a version of the Moreno question that pits European identity against Britishness, for example? What what, what we do know from polling that's been done in the past is that the more English you are, the less likely you are to identify as European. The more British you are, you're more likely to, but it still leaves you, as Sunder says, in quite a small minority. But I think there's a broader question here, which relates to what Sunder's saying: is the absence of any attempts to bring it back to politics to tell inclusive national political stories. And one of the things that's happening is that our politics in England have been dominated by English national identity, which has reshaped our policy, politics over the last 20 years. And there's been almost a complete absence of any attempt to tell a national political story that is different to that. Um, Britishness has emerged partly from cosmopolitanism, partly from multiculturalism. Englishness is moving in the same direction, but more slowly and without any real engagement from civic society groups or from the state. So sport is left to carry far too much weight. Certainly politicians aren't in that field. And I, I think that's very odd because I don't want to take us too far away from your topic, but as I'm here, um, the sort of people who support independence in Scotland and the sort of people who support independence in Wales are much more like demographically and in values terms, the people who are more British, not English in England, who don't like national politics and national identity. In other words, there's nothing about that demographic that means they should automatically recoil from the idea of a broadly progressive patriotic story of the nation. And I think one of the oddities in English politics is the complete absence of people playing the role that the Labour Party has played in Wales or the Welsh Nationalists have played in Wales or the Scottish Nationalists have played in Scotland. And I think one of the big questions for the future of our politics is anybody going to step into that void? and actually say, well, there is a national story for England, it will be English and British, which actually relates to a, a broad, a more progressive sense of what the nation should be like. And I see no sign of that happening at the moment. Can I just jump in on that? I mean, I, 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 I think one of the really interesting things about Englishness, um, when it is sort of debated as a topic in a very often in a very kind of abstract way, is that th there's this 
obviously there are different fears about it. I mean, one is the fear that that really this is sort of masks a sort of ethno-cultural way of viewing the nation, that there's something distinctively you know, xenophobic or, or exclusivist about English identity, which of course is exactly what people have said about British identity in, in different in different periods. And um, the other sort of fear, I think, is that the, somehow it's an encompassing identity, that it were if people identify as English, no, the other multiple identities that we all hold will cease to matter somehow. And um, I think it's really important to sort of challenge that because there is significant evidence. I mean, John mentioned the, the close relationship between local identities and a sense of Englishness. But it's also the case that, that and Ailsa knows this very well, it's clear in her book, but that people who identify as English can articulate that in different political ways as well. What is striking is that in the recent period, we've seen people, a sort of coalescence of political expressions of Englishness, if you like. And it, that does seem to tally with a period in which there's been a very marked reluctance to engage with Englishness on the part of politicians. More generally, though, uh, you know, authorities, different kinds of public institutions and so on as well. There's been a, broadly quite a silence and reticence about that. And I think one of the, the sort of counterfactuals, really, of the recent period is, could it have been that, that an alternative idea of Englishness, which would perhaps connect to, for some people to feeling confident with being European or being multicultural, British and so on, could that kind of sense of Englishness have been shaped and developed? Of course, that is a counterfactual. We don't know that. But I, I agree with John, that very much is one of the challenges we face in our politics now moving forward. Elsa. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've spoken a lot about a politicized identity and and I think it's helpful to talk about well how do we know when one is politicized and I think there's two things going on one when it aligns with political attitudes evaluations expectations and values so when it's salient so by its salience it is politicized but the other is a kind of more straightforward um understanding I guess of identity is politicized and it's it it's when uh, when it has a, a spokesman or, a, or a, a, a campaigner who seeks to project a, an understanding of a, of a project for a people and that message has an audience. So it needs a messenger, it needs a message, and it needs an audience, right? And so one thing, um, one thing I think that's quite clear is that to date, the, the if we have that understanding of a politicized English national identity, then it's very clear who the messengers have been. It's very clear what the message has been and, and, and the audience kind of flows from that. But I, th I think we're right, you know, John is right in that there is no, there's no reason why the messenger and the message couldn't be different. It just takes a willingness on the part of the messenger. And that is one thing that we've seen that's kind of absent um, on the center left. So one thing we know, for example, from the 2014 referendum in Scotland, was that one of the most effective messages on the part of the Yes campaign was this notion of what kind of a society do you want to be? Do you want to be a society where the gap between rich and poor is large? Or do you want to be a society where the gap between rich and poor is small? And if it's the latter, then you have to vote for independence. So we've got lots of polling showing that that message was effective, but also gaining in its effectiveness as referendum day 
approached. And that message is very similar to the kind of notion of a, a projet de société that you get in Quebec from, from nationalists in, in Quebec, those who support sovereignty, sovereignty for Quebec. It's present in terms of, of Catalonia. So there's no reason why that same message could not be communicated within England. And also, I'm not suggesting that what needs to happen is that there needs to be a kind of independence movement within, within England for it to be a politicized national identity. But this understanding of a, of a, of a project for a group to, to, to change the way that you structure things on behalf of a group, um, that message is, is only coming from one place uh, at the moment in England. And there's, there is more than enough room, certainly this is evident from the data, there's more than enough room for a different message to be made. Thank you. I think that's really fascinating in terms of how these um, identities and attitudes and values link together, because that's clearly a, a different kind of values-based message, if, you know, in terms of wanting the gap between rich and poor to be wider or narrower and, and how those things connect. One of the other questions that, that's coming through the Slido is, is kind of what, and, and I found it slightly at odds with the discussion because we've moved into a discussion that's very much about Englishness and this question is very much about what what lies I don't know if I can say this what lies behind the union jackery of the of the Conservative Party but yeah I guess some people would argue of the Labour Party in recent months as well um, what what do you think is driving is driving that kind of use of so many British flags in in all circumstances um, I don't know who wants to come in first. Sandra, you're on mute. Did you, or did you want to go first? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, at one, at one level, it, it's fairly unremarkable. Um, nobody's ever governed a country without having an association with the flag of the country they want to govern. Every government uses the flag. Um, I can't think of successful opposition parties that haven't, that haven't used the flag. Um, there's a political incentive with the Conservative Party, if um, something that would seem to be quite banal, your government minister, there's your national flag, seems to split and discombobulate your political opponents. So they're having an argument about whether they like the flag or not, then that is a, a very happy day for people who don't have that problem, because two thirds, 70 percent of the society won't have that won't have that problem. So it is a bit odd to find the flag difficult. Now, you know, progressive and liberal movements might have more or less attachment to different flags. You know, the Canadian liberal left feels quite uh, at ease with their flag. They probably feel they've shaped that flag over time. Why does, why does Welsh Labour feel more confident about national identity than other parts of the Labour Party around the United Kingdom? Well, Welsh Labour probably feels they've shaped the culture of Wales. Over, over decades, they're associated with governing it. Scottish Labour probably used to feel that about Scotland. I don't know if they do anymore. So it might be, it might be difficult, I think, for, uh, you know, for, for it, it's, a, it's a debate within the progressive left where a minority of graduates on the progressive left think there's something difficult about a flag. Um, in my lifetime, people got hold of the Union Jack, changed what it meant and made it mean something that was more inclusive because you know there was a nf chart there's no black in the union jack and basically you said well there's plenty of black in the union jack look at the olympic team um look at where you are so there was a, there was definitely a project for 20 30 years which reflects why ethnic minorities associate with british identity associate with the british flag the story of britain the story of the commonwealth the story of empire and decolonization story of the monarchy if you like explains why you're british 
people on the Windrush felt British for that reason. And it took two or three generations to win that argument that other people should know why they felt British. So this is a, it's a slightly odd thing that the liberal left is doing in having an aversion or an allergy to national identity. And you can only, I think, be successful in government if you do. But the Conservatives, I think, are using it politically um, and maybe damaging the union in the United Kingdom by using the Union Jack in England for a political purpose to beat up the Labour Party in a way that is probably struggling to do the most important thing that needs to do in Scotland, which is persuade younger people that the union has a future. Elsa, you're next to unmute, so I'll come to you next. I mean, fundamentally, I think it's entirely reactive. And I think it's helpful to see it as, from the question I interpreted, the the recent uh, call to have flags um, on buildings and the, the desire of government ministers to make sure that there are flags in the background when they're speaking on things. So to me, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's entirely reactive. And I think it's also from a place of, of, I don't know about insecurity, but but unsettledness about the state of things. And to me, it has a it has a corollary in 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 Gordon Brown's calls to focus on on British values and the importance of British values. And we need to teach young children about British values. It's a it's a it's a reaction against. Oh, hang on a minute. We're losing we're losing things a bit here. And we need to we need to focus on on we need to go back to basics. It's also very so it's familiar in the sense of it. It seems to me to be an echo of of the same uh, a, a same kind of reaction that that we saw with 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 Labour. But it's also familiar in the sense that the Canadian government did precisely the same thing after the 1995 referendum in Quebec. They had a, they they created Flag Day. They had a, a million pound flag giveaway and they just went flag crazy for, for a little bit. Um, the other thing I think it, that's relevant is that on the part of the Conservative Party, I think if we if we broaden out the question and think not just per, in terms of flags precisely, but if we think in terms of what has sparked this nervousness perhaps or this attentiveness around national identity, I think that's also reactive. And I think that has longer, a slightly longer history. And I, I think that's largely born of deep concern about losing voters to UKIP. I think it looked to UKIP and saw the very effective way that UKIP was able to mobilize a, a language around uh, political community and symbols of political community and a language of Englishness that was incredibly effective uh, within the electorate. And I think the Conservative Party was probably also looking at the polling that suggested that it was not the party best seen to stand up for England. And I think it borrowed a lot of the imagery and a lot of the um, a lot of the language that that UKIP had been doing and then and then just adopted it as as its own. And that was its way of coping with things. And then lo and behold, in the polls, we see that it is once again the party that is seen to best stand up for Scotland. So I think it's reactive in both instances. I think it's it comes from a sense of being unsettled about how things are going. And I think it's also strategic in terms of its um, in terms of its intent. Mike. Yeah, I, I don't just a couple of things. I mean, I mean, it, it also clearly relates to Brexit. I mean, and the the um, the sort of quick way of identifying um, with um, through that symbol with with um, sort of many people's perspective on, you know, taking back control, re, re, 
reclaiming um, UK-wide sovereignty and so on. And I think that, that, that it serves as a, as a very easy, quick reminder on the Conservative side that, that that's the choice the party has made, was to, to identify strongly with delivering Brexit. And then the other point is about the union, the domestic union, that um, the, the flag has become a sort of object of, of sort of huge um, sort of focus, really, in government, I think, in terms of its thinking about how to promote the the case the cause of the union in the context of obviously Scotland and the the SNP government and the rise of support for independence but also now Northern Ireland so part of the reactive quality that, that Elsa describes I think is also extends to worries about the domestic union but also the, the belief of some parts of central government that actually flying the flag and, and performing um, a certain kind of of unionist uh, politics is extremely important in those areas, in other territories, as well as in England. And um, I mean, this is where you get the sort of endless focus on flags. There was even talk of putting the Union Jack on the vaccine, I remember at one point. And the, the kind of performative side of this is very important, I think, to what's emerged in recent years, which is a sort of a certain kind of very assertive unionism at the centre of British politics, uh, which represents, I think, uh, quite a, a fairly novel phenomenon, even though it has some older elements within it. And the flag, I think, is a very quick and easy way for that style of unionism of demonstrating the, the unionist cause. Now, whether it will work at all um, is, I think, a very different question. And, and it, it may well be that that's, that's very much an idea that makes sense in sitting in an office in London, may not work quite so well in when it translates into Scotland. Thank you. John? Well, if I could say just a couple of things about the Labour Party, which I think has got itself into a difficult position uh, on this. It is very clear that any political party that's going to win, certainly in England, has a sort of minimum threshold of patriotic symbolism around the monarchy, the armed forces, the union flag that you have to achieve. And those people on Twitter who decry the Labour Party for even attempting to do that are really in a very, very small minority of people who have very little electoral appeal outside their own friends. However, the difficulty is that the assumption seems to have grown that associating yourself with patriotic symbols is sufficient to establish your, yourself as an authentic voice for a nation, whether that's the Union or England. And here there are two problems, really, with the, with the flag behind Keir Starmer. One is it is an attempt to insist that Britishness is a unifying identity in the Union. Uh, and that leads it to a note, an idea of nation which is not sufficiently English in England and certainly not sufficiently Scottish in Scotland. And so Labour has got itself into a position mainly because it's always believed that if it ever talks about England, it will lose the union. And that's what Scottish Labour's always told it. Well, I'm not sure Scottish Labour's where you go to for electoral advice these days. But basically, uh, the Labour Party says we can only talk about Britain. We must never mention England because that's what keeps the union together. So it has a sense of what the nation is, which is now completely out of kilter with the distinctive political spaces in England, in Wales and Scotland. And secondly, as yet, Labour's appeal to patriotism has no alternative national story. I mean, there's no extent to which the union flag, the monarchy and, and the armed forces tell a different story about what Labour means for England or for the Union as a whole. 
And so the detachment from, not going back to the early discussion, the inability to tell a different national story, to have a different sense of the national interest, to have a different idea of what being patriotic is, just leaves you with a symbol which is really fairly empty of content and, you know, ends up losing you a bit of your base and not really extending your appeal anywhere. Thank you. I'm going to take it onto slightly different ground with something that's a bit more of an academic question. And feel free just to pass if you don't if you don't, if you don't want to answer this one. But one of the questions that came in, and I think it is one that's that's worth thinking about, is why are we talking about national identity? Why are we talking about increased salience of national identity when we're also at the same time in, in an era of kind of hypermobility where people should, in theory, be less connected to places, perhaps even less connected to nations? So I don't know if any of you really want to tackle that question. Um, I'll look for anybody that looks eager. <laughs> Elsa. So I can I can answer it in a very narrow, narrow way. Um, that yes, that we we are seeing increased mobility, but that but that increased mobility does not mean that people do not need communities that matter to them. And national identities have proven to be incredibly important political communities to people. So as they leave one home, they don't necessarily lose that old community. They just they just they just manage to acquire a new one. So it's not the mobility isn't associated or this is my reading of the, of the data anyway, the mobility is not associated with somehow national identity not being salient anymore, but rather providing opportunities by which people acquire new and multiple national identities to the point that in, in, in one way of looking at it, so I have a, a, a colleague in Canada who does a lot of work on migration and national identity in, in, in places where the nationalist project is quite, strong. So he looks at how migrants feel about independence in Quebec and Scotland and, and Catalonia. And one thing they do is they look to see the point at which a migrant adopts a kind of provincial lens to understand Canadian politics, or the point at which a migrant starts to think through a Scottish lens to understand the union, that is itself a sign of, of engagement and embeddedness within the community. So I don't see it as something that is in tension with national identity, but it changes the way that people can engage with multiple additional national identities. So that would be my, my very limited um, take on it. But others, well, I'm sure have. Thank you. John, well, everybody's desperate to answer the question I thought okay. nobody would want to answer. So I'm going to jump first. Two, two quick points. I think we keep talking about it as long as the evidence says that national identity plays a role in sorting people's political choices. And I won't go back to the data I told earlier. I think the evidence at the moment is important. Secondly, though, and it relates to the change, national identities are shared stories, shared values, shared understandings of the world. In a society that is increasingly fragmented in our experiences because of things of mobility and where there are multiple identities available to you, English, British, European, other, other British, um, faith, ethnicity, national identities, you get multiple national identities 
in a multinational society. England, in that sense, is a multinational society. It's got more than one national identity. So to some extent, what we have seen over the last 20 years has been the emergence of new forms of national identity. The people primarily who are more British than English are really quite unlike the people who are traditionally British and English. They are more diverse, they're more younger, they are more graduate. So, so what you're actually seeing, I think, is new forms of national identity emerging, which reflect the fact that in a fragmented society, we have a different sense of who we are, what the values that we are that, are that we share, the experiences that we have of life. So perhaps the answer to the question is, what we're seeing is what the questioner is wondering about. What happens if you have a more mobile society? The answer is not necessarily you have less national identity, but your national identities evolve to meet the experiences of that group of people. I hope that makes some sense. Thanks, John. Uh, Mike, I'll come to you next, and then to Sandra. I know everybody wants to answer this one. Well, yes, I, I think I was going to make a similar point to John, who's put it better than I can. I mean, I think I think what 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 we need to understand is the sort of the work that that national identities enable people to do. You know, at the level of individuals and at the group level, the sort of the ways in which national identity and stories of national identity enable people to understand some of the changes that I think the questioner is getting at. There's maybe a specific dimension to, to this around immigration, which is, is, I think, you know, it's obviously very important here as part of the story, not just in the UK, but, you know, uh, in, in, in all different parts of the world. And the, the ways in which national identities have at times been mobilised as to express a sort of angry recoil against that, but at other points, national identities and the politics of national identity have been mobilised in order to change people's understandings of, of the nation who belongs in there and so on. And it seems to me that, that, that what, we, what we can't do, and I think there's been a mistake sort of uh, among social scientists and generally, is to assume we know that it's going to be that first response, not the second. You know, they're kind of the, the element of, of making different visions of the nation and of at times including people who previously might not have been seen as, as part of the nation is an incredibly important part of it, as well as at times a reaction against um, uh, uh, immigrants or particular groups. And I, I think in the context of Englishness, there's a really interesting, important story here about um, ethnic minority identities and who's perceived to be part of the English nation. And Sunda touched on this earlier. And it does seem to me that, that, that in the last 20 years or so, there has been a very notable shift there so that that since for many people the lived experience of, of Englishness and who's taken to being English and so on has broadened I think in many ways and yet there are still clearly points of resistance or refusal there particularly I think in terms of um, people from Muslim backgrounds and so on I think that's been a, a point where there's still a struggle an ongoing struggle there to include to widen the sense of who who belongs to and who is seen as English. So I think this is a complicated ongoing politics. And I think what we need to do is to look much more carefully at the forms of imagined community, to use that term, that are constructed in political terms using ideas of national identity. Sandra. I, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would say that what mobility does is it gives, it, it should give liberals a couple of big reasons to pay more attention to national identity. Firstly, you know, you, when you migrate to a society, you can get different levels 
of rights and you can be more or less welcoming to people who join your society. Some strong citizenship national identities have tended to be pretty open to migrants themselves. British identities being one of them, Canadian, Australian, American identity traditionally has done that. Any others and others are narrower. Any national identity that isn't equally available to the children of migrants is going to get into a lot of trouble with ethnic and faith diversity, because if you can be second, third, fourth generation in Italy or Austria and you're Muslim and you're still not quite as Austrian as the other Austrians, then you're going to have a more fragmented society. So investing in the national identity so that it welcomes um, migrants directly as naturalised citizens, but absolutely gives equal stage to the children of migrants, is actually a really important uh, inclusion project for liberals. There's also a more tactical reason, I think, for the cosmopolitan group, which is 10-15% of the society now in a lot of West European democracies, that is feels post-national, feels confident enough in its national identity to move beyond it. You can either, when you want to campaign for international development and refugee rights and climate change, you can either just go straight to a we're all citizens of the world, let's be great citizens of the world, or you can make claims that take the form, this is who we should want to be. We should be good at international development. Um, we should be good at refugee protection because that's our better selves. And if you compare the use of those two arguments, both of them go on. On the whole, the most internationalist thinking societies have tended to tell themselves stories about wanting to have internationalist national identities. You see that quite strongly in uh, Scandinavia. I think you see it in the Federal Republic of Germany. You see it in Britain, I think, to a large extent, in our commitments to international development. So we've become a much more liberal society, even as we're talking about national identity more. Over 30, 40 years, we've become more liberal. So we, we ought to see more liberal versions of national identity. And I think we have seen that, but we don't get that as much as we would if liberals say it's something we're allergic to. So now I know not to ask academic questions to a panel of academics and not expect <laughs> not expect answers. We've just got five minutes left, so I'm going to move the, move us on to some different territory again. Um, now the the whole of the week is looking at the the future of uh, and I'll use the word British here because it does tie in very much with the question I'm going to ask the future of British politics. And the questions come in here about why the English don't seem really to care about the union so they seem quite relaxed when we're in polling questions about Scotland becoming independent Wales becoming independent I wonder if any of you bearing in mind we've only got four minutes left wanted to give quick thoughts on that particular question as we look to the future Elsa then Mike then John I'll come I'll come around you in that order <laughs> so really quickly um if you if you combine the proportion of of the if you combine the proportion of people who want independence for their part or reunification with Ireland in the case of Northern Ireland and the proportion who have a kind of ambivalent approach to the union, you're at over half of the electorate, no matter where in the UK you're talking about. So what sets the English apart is that they have by far the largest proportion of ambivalent unionists, those who are happy for one or more other parts to go their own way. Um, but that's in part because in Scotland, for example, you have a far larger proportion of people who actively want out, right? So the thing that sets England apart is its ambivalence rather than its active desire for change. And there is a real sense of, I don't want independence, but for goodness sake, if you would happen to leave me the state on my own, I would be perfectly happy 
with that. So there's a non-radical sense of um, vision of the state there. But I'll, I know others want to get in, so I'll stop there. Mike? Yeah, I, I would, I would, I, I definitely, I think that there's a lot to what Elsa says. I, I, I guess I'd introduce the term indifferent unionists, perhaps as well. It seems to me that that's probably, it looks like the majority view in England. And I think that's, you know, the people who are sort of, to a degree, relaxed, but also not particularly engaged, I think, with the issues that are emerging in different parts of the UK. And I think, looking forward, going to your question, Paul, about the future of British politics, that's a really important context for a government that is going to have to spend a lot more time and political capital and, and invest more resource, it looks, on other parts of the UK in order to, to promote uh, the union as a cause. And I think the question of whether the English are ready to respond to the union becoming one of the great causes in British politics is really, really important and um, hard to read, I think, given that the English have not been particularly engaged with some of the, the questions about devolution and the future of the union um, that are coming through now in a very pressing way. John. We did some polling in the 2019 election about the implications of Brexit as it was proposed. As you would expect, the more English who were the people who had voted Brexit and were going to vote for get Brexit done, thought that Brexit would be very good for England. Very few of them thought it would be damaging for the union. So the real nuance here is that whilst English voters are ambivalent about the union, many of them believe you can pursue English interests without it doing serious harm to the union. So there's a sort of, there's not a, I'm going to vote for Brexit and goodbye Scotland. It's if I get the Brexit that I want as an English identifying voter, I don't actually believe that's going to have any effect on whether Scotland or Northern Ireland or Wales stay within the union. So just, it's a more nuanced thing and it may be, you know, the damage will be done by just that sort of casual attitude, but that seems to be where those voters are at the moment. Thank you. And finally, to Sunder, if you've got any thoughts on that question? Yeah, I think the um, I think the level of English indifference to Northern Ireland is absolutely profound. And I think maybe some of the forms that Northern Irish unionism takes in a way reflect an awareness of the level of indifference. I, you know, I don't think it's especially good thing, but I think I think it's the truth. In terms of um, Scotland and the union, I think we really don't know. My, my subjective perception was that the English broadly noticed the last referendum with about three or three or four weeks to go and thought about it quite a bit. And the sort of median view was, oh, it would be a shame. I hope they don't. Um, but I've just noticed and then and, and then you get back into it. But what, what I think that that level of not paying attention most of the time, and I think it might be more salient for longer this time, people just really don't know how they would feel the morning after um, a Scottish vote to leave. You know, and I think it would have much more profound uh, emotional and psychological impacts than people recognize you don't know what the country would be called what you would do with the flag um it would it would i think be quite a big moment but i think people are going to engage with it when it actually happens perhaps rather than before it does thank you 
There is a lot I could pick up on there, but unfortunately we are even a minute over time. So all I can do is thank you all for your insights. I could easily have sat and listened to you talk about this for another hour. Um, and thank you to the audience for bearing with us for that extra minute. I know there are a lot of questions on the constitutional side of this that I didn't put to the panel. Please come back for tomorrow's session, which is all focused on constitutional issues. And those ones are far more likely to be addressed um, in tomorrow's session. Thank you, everybody.